die, would you forget it? Would you not get around to it on some nights? No. It would be so crucial that you wouldn't forget. You would never miss it. And Kathy said to Tim Keller, well, if we don't, if we don't pray together to God, we're not going to make it because of everything that we're facing. I'm certainly not. We have to pray. And we can't let that merely slip our minds. James, writing to his original audience, is convinced that they too have a need for prayer. That they can simply not afford to let it slip their minds. He writes this letter to this audience who have been enduring severe hardships. They've been oppressed. They've been defrauded. Some have even died. And as this letter is coming to a close, James brings to focus the greatest need of living in a fallen world. It's not about having certain strategies that will ensure that you can do X or Y or Z. No, James makes clear that if they do not pray, if they do not pray individually, if they do not pray together corporately, then they will not make it. And after calling them this past week to wait, to be patient for the coming of the Lord, he now calls them to pray. And we would be amiss to not to overlook that connection. Are you struggling to wait patiently for the return of the Lord? Give yourselves to prayer. That's the connection that James is wanting to make. So through this letter, the Holy Spirit intends James to call us, not just the original audience, but us by extension, to experience the graciousness and the generosity of God through prayer. And so when life isn't working according to your plan, where do you turn? When you're facing things that you thought you would have never faced, where do you turn? When things are going well and you are tasting the blessings of God, where do you turn? Brothers and sisters, we must pray or we will not make it. Not only is this true for our lives, this is also true for this sermon. This letter has been such a gift of grace to me. I trust it's been a gift of grace to our church to just week by week walk through verse by verse. And as I think even about next week being the last week of our sermon series through James, if I'm honest, I'm a bit saddened, but I trust that the effects of this letter will remain with us as we journey on towards glory. And so let's pray. Let's pray for this sermon that that would be the case. Our holy God, we ask you to do what we can't do. Give us eyes to behold your glory. Give us appetites to thirst and hunger and to be satisfied on you alone. Give us the ability. Help us turn from the things of this world. 
so that we would find our soul's delight and satisfaction and joy ultimately in you. And so would you use this sermon to help accomplish those ends? And would you call us, your people, to be a people who devote themselves, who give themselves to prayer? Help us pray. We want to see you. And so allow this sermon to allow us to behold you for your glory. Do more with this sermon in the next few moments together than we could manufacture on our own. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to open them to James chapter 5. It is a good practice every time someone teaches out of God's word for you to open your Bibles to ensure that what's being said is coming from his word and it's not merely man's words. James chapter 5, 5 will be the larger number normally at the top there. That stands for the chapter. We'll be in verses 13 through 18. Those are the smaller verses, uh, smaller numbers. And so this letter began with a call to patience. If you remember James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And so there's this call to patience. And what follows the call to patience? James chapter 1, verse 5, very beginning of the letter. But if any of you lacks wisdom... If you lack that perspective, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. And so this call to patience, and then a call to prayer. That's how James began his letter. And that's how James concludes this letter. Call to patience, as we saw last week, verses 7 through 12, a call to prayer. Verses 13 through 18. Like most New Testament letters, James brings the topic of prayer into focus during these last few verses. Last week, we saw that in, in six verses, James mentions patience or endurance or steadfastness seven times in six verses. It's the overwhelming idea that James is wanting to bring home. Well, this morning... In six verses, he mentions seven times explicit references to prayer. Our passage, no doubt, has some challenging uh, issues for us to tackle, but my prayer this morning is that we can find encouragement, right? You didn't show up today to merely hear someone say, newsflash, we need to pray. We all knew that coming in. And so my, my hope and my prayer has been that we would take great encouragement, not merely from a, a summons to pray, but that we would just be reminded of the generosity and the gracious character of God who's inviting us to himself through prayer. And so if you're in need of prayer this morning, I pray this sermon would serve your soul. If you need to grow and you need to Become obedient in praying. I pray that this would serve your soul if you're struggling with prayer. We'll see James gives 
four encouragements and efforts to call us and to call his original audience to pray. Four encouragements to pray. Number one, in the good and in the bad, pray. In the good and in the bad, pray. We see this in verse 13 that we heard read. Listen again. Is anyone among you suffering? Then he must pray. Is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises. With those questions, is anyone among you suffering? Is anyone among you cheerful? We anticipate many hands to be raised in response. Yes, James. Yes, we're suffering. This letter has has made clear the sufferings, the heartaches, the trials that these These Christians have been walking through. There's something about our curiosity that's peaked whenever we hear something like this, and we want to know what kind of suffering were they were they facing? Was it physical suffering? Was it emotional? Was it relational? What kind of suffering were they going through? But more important than the kind of suffering that James is speaking about, James puts the accent mark not over the kind of suffering, he puts the accent mark over where to go. Where do you go when you endure suffering? And what we find is the gracious provision of God. The gracious provision of God that is desperately needed during suffering is prayer. I want to make sure you heard that. The gracious provision of God that is desperately needed during suffering is prayer. Charles Spurgeon put it this way. Heaven's great harbor of refuge is prayer. Thousands of weather-beaten vessels have found their haven there. The moment that a storm comes on, it is wise for us to make a break for that haven with all that we are. God provides for what is needed in the time, in the moment of need, through prayer. When suffering, we're intended to feel God's care for us as we pray. In the original audience, they needed needed this command because their impulse in suffering was to grumble. Which is why many of us need this command. Because our impulse to suffering is to complain, is to grumble, to complain and to grumble against one another or to complain and to grumble against God. And prayer protects us. It protects us from indulging in private self-pity and prayer protects us from indulging in public complaining. In the good... And in the bad, we are to pray. Pray for deliverance from the trial. But also pray for endurance through the trial. The gracious invitation of this command. It's not merely, hey, pray. There's a gracious invitation on the other side of the command. And the invitation is that there is a God who listens. 
There is a God who hears. He loves you. He's committed to you. He's a generous and glad giver. How often do we find ourselves in seasons and in moments of suffering and hardships and trials? And yet, sadly, how seldom or how infrequent do we find ourselves devoted to prayer during those seasons? But it's not just pray when life is hard. It's not just pray. He doesn't just say, is anyone among you suffering? Then he must pray. No, James then asks, who among you is cheerful? God's not merely the God to run to when life is hard. He is a God for every season. He is God over every season. And he is good in every season. And so for those that are suffering, there's a temptation to forget God. But James is so helpful. Again, a skillful pastor. James reminds us that it's not just those who are suffering that are prone to forget God. No, those who are in times of contentment and prosperity. A time of relative ease. We too are prone to forget God to forget the gracious and generous God who's the provider behind all of their circumstances. And so when there's an absence of conflict and an absence of suffering and trial, perhaps we're prone to think that God is sort of the God that we put on the shelf whenever suffering comes because he helps us then. And whenever we get through the suffering, we put him back on the shelf because we're good for now. And James is saying, no, no. He is the one who's providential. He's good and powerful and sovereign behind every circumstance. And so James says, to those that are suffering, then they should pray. And to those that are cheerful, then let them sing their prayers to God. Let them sing praises to God. Humility before God, gratitude toward God is to be expressed in praise. Commentator Doug Moo says, he warns, this is a reminder to turn to God. And it's needed even more in times of cheer than in times of suffering because when our hearts are comforted, it's all too easy to forget that our contentment can come only from God. And so the only appropriate response to your suffering is to pray, to cry out to God. The only appropriate response to your good fortune, to your favorable circumstances, to your joyfulness and cheerfulness is to sing Sing. It is vitally important what we do before we listen to the word that's preached week in and week out. We gather together to be a people who sit under the word, but we sit under the word with a certain posture of heart. And that posture of heart is to be marked by gratitude. It's to be marked by thankfulness. It's to be marked by overflowing joy. And that doesn't mean that it's always easy. It doesn't mean that it can never be difficult or that there can never be tears because it's heavy, but there's always joy. The heart that is set to God in all seasons will find in all seasons a comfort and a source of joy, which is why then we come together and we put an emphasis and we encourage, sing loud, 
Why? Because there is a song that is within each of our hearts that's meant to make its way out, that's meant to echo not just through masks to get out, but that's meant to reverberate in the souls of one another. It's meant to just echo. We sing. That's, that is theology. That's take-home theology. The songs that we sing, I love it throughout the weeks when my daughters would just start singing the songs that we sing. And I'm just thinking, they're learning doctrine. And I'm begging God, would you allow the heart to match the, the reservoir of riches that are coming from these songs? I'm so thankful for a culture that's growing in this church of meaningful singing. That when we come together and when there's joy to be had, we express that, not merely in high fives and hugs, but we express that. Yeah, praise God for high fives and hugs. And I can't wait till we can do that again. But that we would express that joy and that cheer in our songs to God. I'm thankful for even being led this morning by Hunter and Mel. Thankful for the ways in which Charlie labors week in and week out to see our church grow in understanding rightly how we worship in and through our singing. And so cheerful brothers and sisters, lift your voice in a song of praise. Suffering brothers and sisters, cry out to God. And even when you feel like you can't sing, allow singing to be a discipline that reminds your hearts of the one who is worthy, even when your circumstances would say otherwise. J. Alec Motier says, our whole life should be angled towards God so that whatever strikes upon us, whether it's sorrow or joy, should be deflected upwards back at God in praise. We have a God for every season of the soul. John Calvin says, this means that there's no time that God doesn't invite us to himself. And so whatever comes your way, bring it to him. He's not some abstract deity God that's way out there. No, he is near and he's living. And so do you pray? That's the gracious invitation, not the heavy burden. It's the gracious invitation this morning. Do you pray? In good times and in bad, pray. It leads us to our second encouragement. In sickness, call the elders to pray. In sickness, call the elders to pray. We see this in verses 14 and 15. Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up, and he, if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. And so you have to picture the scene. We have suffering, we have cheerfulness, verse 13. We get to 14 and 15, and now there's sickness. And the scene is that there's someone there, the word there for sick is, is literally without strength. So some people would say, is that spiritual sickness? 
I don't think that he's speaking of a spiritual sickness here. I believe the plain reading of the text, as well as everything that else is happening in these two verses, would point to this is a physical sickness. And it's a serious physical sickness. It's preventing one from going to the elders. He doesn't even have the strength. This one doesn't even have the strength to go to the elders to seek prayer. So he has to call on them to come. And even the imagery of praying over And so there's a physical sickness, a severe physical sickness. And the mention here of elders, then he must call for the elders of the church. The mention here of elders helps us understand both the design of church leadership. I mean, all throughout the New Testament, we see this precedent of the church being led by a plurality, multiple leaders, not just resting with one, but being a shared leadership of the people of God, trusting that God speaks not merely through one man, but through a majority of counsel. But not only is there the design for church leadership, but you also even just see the design behind Christians. Every Christian ought to belong to a church that they have pastors that they can call on in moments of need to come and pray. It's this picture, this, this implied knowing and being known. This isn't just open the phone book, go to the yellow pages. That's right. That's how old I am. Go to the yellow pages, find someone, and just sort of, I'm going to put a call in to see if any pastor can come and pray for me. And so we see and we're reminded, even of God's grace to our church, through a plurality of leadership, through meaningful membership. The word elder there, it's synonymous all throughout the New Testament with the word of pastor. So you, you hear elder, don't think of something other than a pastor. It's one who's giving oversight, one who's shepherding. And I want to be clear, these verses are not prohibiting the use of medicine. They're not saying if you get sick, you don't go to the doctor, you call your pastors. <laughs> it's not what these verses are saying. Call your pastors, have them pray for you, and then go to the doctor. So this isn't pitting two things against each other. This is simply prescribing prayer. The natural impulse is to overlook prayer, especially in a culture in a day like ours, when there's a solution readily available for most things except for COVID-19. Right? There's a solution. You get sick. What do you do? You know what medicines to take, and so you go and you take the medicine. You know what doctor to see, so you go and you visit the doctor. And those are good gifts. But if we're not careful, we overlook the value and the need for prayer. And this, the, these two verses are sadly misunderstood. And they have been abused throughout the history of the church. And so you read verses 14 and 15, it would be easy to think, okay, uh, so is James saying that if I am sick, it's because I have sin, that somehow every sickness, every cold that I get is because of a sin that I committed some point last week? No, that's not what James is saying. Just look in verse 15. The prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up, and if... He has committed sin. 
if. And so James even puts to death and puts to bed that notion that somehow every sickness is related to every sin. We do know that all sickness comes from the fall, the general fall from all sin. It sort of flows from the same river. But what we can't do is say every particular sin is flowing from some pointed, or every particular sickness is flowing from some kind of personal sin that I committed a week ago or a few days ago or a month ago. But to be clear, James isn't saying that illness is never related to sin. If you read 1 Corinthians 11, Paul makes this clear. The church of Corinth is coming together and they are sinning in how they're taking the Lord's Supper. And Paul says, and some of you are sick because of it. Oh, and by the way, some of you have died because of it. And at the places where sin and sickness are linked, James holds out good news and says, your sins can be forgiven. There is a God who is gracious, who desires not merely physical health. He desires physical health. He desires the flourishment of his children. But he desires eternal security. And so why call the elders well, one of the precious aspects of, the, of, the, of an elder's ministry, a pastor's ministry, is that he is to devote himself to the ministries of to the word and prayer as he's giving oversight for the flock that is among him. And so those that are sick in some serious ways are to call the elders and they are to be prayed over by the elders. And so some people, and, and I think this is a prevalent thought, some people in that instance, would say, I don't want to be a burden to my elders. There's a severe sickness that could alter the course of my life going forward, and I just don't want to be a nuisance. I don't want to bother the elders. And James just reminds us what Paul makes clear is that it's the elders' privilege to pray. If your elders and your pastors don't have time to pray... They shouldn't be pastors. They are to commit themselves to this work. And God intends, in some instances, to use the prayers of his under-shepherds, pastors, to unfold the healing of his flock. And so you don't call the elders because the elders are or more savvy in medicine than the doctors. That would be a grave mistake. You call them because it is their God-given responsibility to pray for you. Okay, I, I get why we call pastors. Why then do we anoint with oil? And what in the world does that mean? And let's just say it up front. The anointing with oil portion of this verse gets all of the attention. Sadly, what gets lost is the clear mandate to pray. To pray. Some believe that you use the oil for medicinal values. Uh, uh, the parable of the Good Samaritan would, would remind us that there is some good medicinal values that's used and oil. I don't believe that's what's happening here. I don't believe that's why James has included this for the medicinal value. 
He could have called them to go to physicians and doctors, and they could apply it in that way. Some people believe this is for kind of this traditional sacramental view. If you know much about the Catholic faith, the Catholic faith has used this verse to justify this notion of holy unction or last rites, whereby when someone is on their deathbed, you call a priest, the priest comes, anoints them with oil, and whatever remaining sin there is, that God would forgive the sin because of the prayer with the oil. I just I will quote one commentator that I found particularly helpful in addressing this. With all the love in the world, what we can say about this passage is that it has nothing to do with what has come to be called holy unction or last rites. James is talking about the removal of sickness from life, not the removal of sin for death. And that's clear. And this is what happens if if we begin to lose the good news of the cross, we begin to look for the cross's power in other things like oil. And oil was never intended to bring the power that can only come through the shed blood of Jesus and the bodily resurrection. That's the only way that sins are forgiven. And so it seems best to understand that the oil then is this physical symbol of a spiritual reality. Think about it. All through Jesus' ministry, Jesus healed people and he touched them. He didn't have to touch anyone to heal them. Why did he do it? Because it gave a visual of who was healing and it gave a visual of what was happening. It's similar with the ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper, this physical symbol. It's more than a symbol, but it's at least a physical symbol of a spiritual reality. We do this in other places. We have groundbreaking ceremonies. Right? We threw the gold shovel in the ground. Well, the gold shovel in the ground doesn't build anything, but it's symbolic of what's taking place. It's symbolic of what's happening. Same thing with a ribbon cutting. Businesses can open without cutting a ribbon, but that's symbolic of what's happening. And so we don't, we don't see anointing in connection with healing in the New Testament, but it's everywhere in the Bible about separating sort of setting apart those that are called to serve God. And so as the elders pray, they are to anoint the sick person in order to symbolize that that person is being set apart for special attention and special care for, from the elders. And we trust from God. And so why call the elders and why bring oil? That's why. And then verse 15, James says, and there's a prayer that's offered in faith. And the prayer that's offered in faith will restore the one who is sick. And so you read that and you say, wait a minute. Has James just made this unconditional guarantee that if I pray in faith, then there will be no sickness? Well, what does it mean to pray in faith? Well, the answer is no. That's, that's not what James is saying. 
What does it mean to pray in faith? Praying in faith is praying that expresses my trust in God and my submission to God. I'm I'm fully relying. Even when I can't see it, I'm fully relying on his sovereignty, his wisdom, his providence. And so every prayer that I pray, every prayer that is prayed in faith is submitted to God. It's submitted to his will. Right? This is what James says in James chapter 4 when he's talking about how we talk and how we make plans. James chapter 4, 15. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, then we will live this way and we will do this or that. So too, when we pray, we pray with this clause that we oftentimes need to say to remind ourselves, but hopefully it's implicit in every prayer. Lord, not our will, but your will be done. Somewhere in our prayers, we must find a balance between never expecting God to heal and requiring him to heal every time we pray. And therein lies the tension of the Christian life. Never demanding that he pray every time. Never expecting him to come through in healing. I mean, Jesus says in John 14, 14, whenever he talks about praying in his name, Jesus is not giving us a formula that will make things that we want come true. Jesus is saying, you take into account my will. God uses faith-filled prayers to heal But that doesn't mean that every faith-filled prayer will heal someone. Uh, We could contend that Paul was a man of great faith. And if we read 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul makes clear that he begged God multiple occasions to take away a suffering. I don't think any of us wants to say Paul's a man who has no faith. In fact, the Lord made known to Paul why he didn't take it away. In the midst of his great faith. It wasn't that Paul didn't have enough faith so he couldn't be healed. It was that there was a sovereign, good, providential reason for the suffering and for the trial. So why does James say, In verse 15, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. If if sin and sickness are not always one-to-one related, why does he bring that up here? Well, again, I believe that James is making clear that sin and sickness is not always related because of the, the word if. But I think James would say, again, like Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, that sometimes they are. And so not only is God pleased to hear and answer prayer for physical healing, God is also gracious to forgive sin. The Lord can, and he does heal. It's not the oil that's specific. It's not the elder that's special. It's the Lord 
And the Lord has prescribed it in this way so that we would be able to see clearly who the power belongs to and where it resides. And so do you call on your elders to pray? When you are facing and overcome with severe sickness, I will be taking a few weeks off over the next couple of weeks. And uh, what I hope doesn't happen is that sinus infections begin to lead to a flood of emails asking for the elders to come. And in my absence, John Huff will gladly pray for your sinus infections. No, that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about severe sicknesses that could alter the trajectory of the rest of your life. You're unable even to come. And so do you call on your elders to pray when sick? If not, I want to encourage you on the basis of James chapter 5, call the elders to pray. It shows your confidence in God's prescribed means of healing. And what's interesting is that the initiative is not on the pastors, though they ought to be in the know and they ought to be willing and ready. The initiative is on the one who is sick. And so if you are in this main hall or in the east hall at any of our live streams, you will find introduce yourselves card. We, we say, if you have ways that we can pray for you, fill that out. It would be our joy to pray for you regularly. It would be our joy when, when the scenario and the situation requires it to come to you and to pray over you with oil. Your pastors pray regularly for you in a myriad of ways that you never see. And that's our joy. And that's our privilege. And that's our responsibility. And so if you are sick, call the elders to pray. Leads to the third encouragement. In sin, confess to another and pray. In sin, confess to another and pray. You see this in verse 16. And so we've had in good times and in bad times pray, verse 13. In sickness, call for an elder to pray, 14 and 15. And now verse 16. In sin, confess to another and pray. Listen to verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. And so in light of verses 13 through 15, James then says that confession of sin and prayer are necessary. Confession of sin and prayer are necessary. They go together so that the healing of physical illnesses in the community can take place, so that the forgiveness of sins will be reminded of where that forgiveness can come from. And what's interesting is there's a shift here. Verses 14 and 15, we have this call to go to the elders and to pray. In verse 16, the call then goes to other Christians. Go to other Christians and pray. 
This ought to remind us that the power to heal is invested not in the elders, but in prayer. Prayer is the common scenario and theme in every one of these instances. And so the, the power doesn't reside in the oil. The power doesn't reside in the elders. The power resides with the Lord, and he unleashes that in a myriad of ways through prayer. And that's what James makes clear. It's appropriate for the elders to pray, to intercede for those who are seriously ill. James also makes clear that all believers have this privilege and responsibility to pray for healing with one another. James wants to make clear that prayer is a powerful weapon in the hands even of the humblest believer. The most humble believer it doesn't require a super saint. When we are sick, on our backs, facing upward to heaven, thinking of this life, and Lord willing, the one that is to come, that imagery, that imagery should remind us of what sin does to us. Sin brings us low, makes us think of the purpose of this life, and what is to come. And as we said, sin, uh, sickness entered because sin entered the world before it. The horrors of sickness remind us, ought to remind us something of the horrors of sin. And so it's no surprise then, whenever one is sick, they should be open to confess sin. I, I shared this last week. I just, you get sick and you just begin to just come clean and you're making all types of confessions and prayers about, I'm never going to do this. And, and I can remember just growing up vividly. And in my worst moments of pain and agony of physical sickness, I can just remember going through the catalog of sins and just going, ah, I, I shouldn't have done that. I, and not only should I not have done that, I will never do that again if you allow this bug to pass. I, used to, I didn't say to pass, but I used to pray stuff like that. Think stuff like that. It's no surprise that whenever we are physically sick, that we begin to think about deeper sicknesses. We begin to feel guilt and shame of the sin that we've indulged in. And again, some sicknesses may be directly related to the sin. And yet we find throughout the Bible, we think of the hardships and the sufferings, and even the physical pain that Job went through. It wasn't related to his sin per se. We think about the book of Hosea and how they were seeking to run away from God. And God loved them too much to let them keep running. So he caused trial and hardship and physical pain so as to stop his people in their tracks. Confess sin and pray for one another. Again, when we do that, we are showing that we agree with God's prescribed means of one of the ways in which he has been faithful and he has promised to bring healing. 
And if he doesn't heal you after you confess your sin, that is not a wasted confession. (laughs) No, that is good. That is good because there's something about sickness that brings us to the place of just utter vulnerability. Right? I can remember the first time in being married that I got sick. And not severe sick, but just like sick. Like throw up sick. That's all I'll say. And I can just remember just in just going, Jackie is just hearing all of, I, I, I'm, I'm a, I cry when I get that kind of sick. It's just, I can't do anything. Just this place of complete vulnerability. It's like one of the, it's got to be, a, it's just a terrible place to be, and it's one of the worst places. She sees me at the lowest of low. And yet there's something even about confession. We are so bent on safeguarding our reputations that we're more concerned about what others think of us than where we stand with God. And God has so given the gift of confession so that we would just be stripped of any self-reliance and self-preservation. And good news, if you're a follower of Jesus, the gospel has already said more about you The gospel has already shocked the people around you. You're not strong enough to save yourself. You're not sufficient enough to keep it all together. And so the fact that you belong to Christ, you've already waved the flag of surrender of saying, hey, I am far worse than anyone thinks that I am. And yet somehow we become part of the church and we begin to grow in holiness and we begin to think that somehow if other people will think more highly of us than we ought, then maybe there's a reward somewhere for that. And the Bible just makes clear, there are no rewards for playing games. There are rewards for broken and contrite hearts and spirits that are just full of poverty. I don't have anything. And there's really nothing that I can confess to you. As embarrassing it may be in the moment, there's nothing that I can confess to you that would shock you to think that somehow I'm not more broken than I really am. Confession is a gift of grace. And so if you confess and you are not physically healed, that is not a wasted confession. Sin may be caused by sickness, but both sin and sickness are always good reasons to reflect on God. And so, do you confess? When you have sickness, do you confess sin? And do you ask other people to pray for healing? Again, I think, I think this is mainly physical. But I think there's clearly implications. You read the end of Galatians and this idea of bearing one another's burdens. And I think there are spiritual implications here. That leads us to our last encouragement. Number four, in boldness, learn from others and pray. In boldness, learn from others and pray. 
Maybe one of the reasons for prayerlessness during trials and sufferings is that we don't know how to pray. And so James then gives us an example of one to follow. Follow Elijah. The example of Elijah proved that the prayers of a righteous man were effective. And if you know much about Elijah, you may be thinking, this doesn't engender a lot of confidence. Like, I'm to pray, and the example that you gave me is the guy who, when he gathered with 450 prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, he calls down fire, and the Lord answered his prayer in such a pro- prominent way, or in, and that's 1 Kings 18, or in 1 Kings 17, he's staying with a widowed woman and her son, on very little to eat. They have enough for one flour cake and the Lord is just constantly providing every day a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more until the son dies. The widowed woman says, oh no, what have I done to my son? I was feeding you and now my son is dead. And Elijah says, no, no, I've got this. He didn't have this, but he knew the God who did and he prays And the Lord uses him to raise her son from the dead. I'm just thinking, if you're wanting to encourage me, James, about how to pray, why in the world do you put Elijah before me? I've not prayed anything like that. And yet there's this moment. And the example that James gives, it's it's so unique. It's, It's the example of whenever he's standing before King Ahab and his wife Jezebel. And a drought had been going on for about six months. And Elijah stands up and says, this is going to last for three years. And Ahab and Jezebel want to kill him. They want to do away with him. And he says, this is going to last for three years. And Elijah just faithfully prays for three years. And three years later, Elijah prays that the Lord would open the heavens. And and God answered his prayers. Before he prayed that, whenever Jezebel and Ahab said, we want to kill him, this guy who literally just came down off of the mount of seeing the Lord provide fire, who the chapter before saw the Lord raise this dead boy to life, what's he do? He runs. He panics. He falls into a depression where he even cries out to God, should you just take my life? And I'm encouraged. I'm encouraged that James draws attention to the humanity of Elijah. Somebody doesn't have to be on the front of the godliness godliness line in order to pray and to receive extraordinary answers to prayers. James picks this example to provoke and to inspire us. And he says in verse 17, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. There's a humanity to identify with. The example of prayer in this instance, it's it's intentional and it's instructional. Why this example? Why not to show prayers that 
call down fire and prayers that raise people up. I think in part because James is writing to people who are suffering. And people who are suffering are having to wait for God to come through. And the example that James brings to mind about Elijah is the example in which Elijah had to wait for three years. He waited for three years and God proved himself to still be faithful even in the extended waiting. It required patience and perseverance on Elijah's part. And he had to exercise faith while he waited. In our prayers and the answers to them normally will involve patience and perseverance. We will have to wait. James isn't arguing that Elijah was an ordinary man, or James is arguing that Elijah was an ordinary man who had an extraordinary God who was eager to hear and to respond to the prayers of his people. Prayer is powerful, not because Elijah was uniquely gifted, but because God is unbelievably generous. And there was a faith that was activated and was desperate on this good God. And this good God invites us to pray bold and audacious prayers. If you were to flip to Deuteronomy chapter 11, Deuteronomy chapter 11, verses 13 through 17, what you would find is that Elijah doesn't just decide what he wants and then prays that God will bring it into existence. No, Deuteronomy chapter 11, verses 13 through 17, the Lord says, you disobey me, droughts are coming. And you pursue me and I will send rains from the heaven. What Elijah is, is an example of one who knows what the Lord wants and who wants it with him through prayer. Do you pray that way? Not, Lord, give me something that I don't even know what you think about this, but I want this so bad. Do you, do you pray not like that, but do you pray, Lord, I want to ransack your word to understand what it is that you desire, and I want that with you, and I will express that to you in and through prayer. This is why James says the prayer of the righteous is effective. God had made a promise, and James ransacked those promises and then prayed them back to God. What promises had, what promise has God given you? What promises has, has he given me? Well, he's not promised to raise us up from the bedridden struggles of physical illness, though he could. Do you know what he did promise? He did promise to save and raise up everyone who would turn from their sin and place their faith and their trust in him alone. How in the world could he make that promise? He makes the promise on the basis of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. Every religion testifies that there is a gap between man and God that man is on one side and God is on the other. And you have temples and you have sacrifices that are doing everything to bring that chasm, uh, to bring that chasm closed, that gap. Let's close the gap. And then you enter Jesus, the Son of God. The one who is on the other side of the chasm also becomes the bridge. He becomes the bridge that closes the gap between man and God. 
And he has promised that all who turn from their sin because of their rebellion against the holy God, all who turn from their sin will be able to have the gap closed, will be able to know the nearness and the friendship of God, not just the one who's way over there, but the one who's good and draws me in. It's possible to become friends with the God who created us, the one who we will give an account to. And the perfect life of Jesus leads him to become the ultimate priest, the one who's standing in the gap, Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 and 15. And because God the Son was made like humans in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest, Hebrews 2, 17. And because we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, we are able to approach God's throne of grace with confidence, Hebrews chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. How can this be? How can we be talking to a God who is altogether different than us, and yet it seems as if he desires to be with us. The only way we can do that is by turning from our sin and placing our faith and trust in the work of Jesus. The righteousness that was required to be with him, he lived it. And the penalty that needed to be paid so that we could live with him, he paid it. And on the third day, he shows that death doesn't get the last word. He rises triumphantly from the grave. And so for my non-Christian friends or my pretend Christians or confused Christian friends, turn from your sin and trust in him. That is your only hope to knowing forgiveness and the power that's available to those who fail day in and day out. Those who don't pray those who don't call on others to pray, those who don't confess their sins and pray, those who don't learn from the example of others and pray. There's a forgiveness and a mercy that will cover your sins. And my Christian brothers and sisters, not only has your sin of prayerlessness been covered, but he gives you the Holy Spirit to equip you to be faithful in your prayers. I pray that we would see the graciousness and the generosity of God in these invitations and exhortations and promises. And summing up this whole section, John Calvin says, James means that there is no time in which God does not invite us to himself. And these commands are a gracious invitation from God inviting us to himself. James chapter four, verse eight. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. In adversity, pray. In prosperity, sing. Sit here stunned and wide-eyed that this invitation is issued to sinners like you and me. And it's only possible because of the cross and the resurrection of our Lord. Let's pray.